Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project, and welcome back. I'm Ron Steslow. We're now about halfway through the Republican National Convention, and it's been upside down. This week, we're examining the themes of the RNC to show the reality behind Trump's hollow claims. Joining me today is Lincoln Project Senior Advisor for Veterans Affairs, Fred Wellman. Fred served in the U.S. Army for 22 years as an aviator and public affairs officer with four combat tours during Operations Desert Storm and Iraqi Freedom. He was the spokesman for General David Petraeus and General Martin Dempsey in Iraq before becoming an effective advocate for our veterans. He's also Ranger qualified, and he's a graduate of both West Point and the Harvard Kennedy School. Fred, I think this is going to be a really good conversation, and I'm grateful to you for taking the time. Uh, great to be here. It's a, obviously a topic I'm passionate about. So the four nights of the convention will feature four themes. Land of promise, land of opportunity, land of heroes, and land of greatness. And I've already spoken with Tara Setmayer about land of promise and land of opportunity. So today, you and I are going to talk about the land of heroes. To set the stage, I really want to get into how Trump is using the American values of respecting our armed forces really to gaslight people into voting for him. And I don't think there's any other way to start this episode than by talking about the Russian bounty scandal. You know, for our listeners, back in June, the New York Times broke the story that Russia was paying the Taliban cash bounties for killing Americans and, uh, and coalition soldiers in Afghanistan. Now, most of us only really understand this as an abstraction, but you've actually had a bounty on your head yep. when you were in Iraq. Can you talk about that and maybe help bring the sinisterness of this story to life for people? You know, my first tour in Iraq, I was with the 101st Airborne Division, uh, Sergeant General Petraeus. Everyone in the division had the mission to do civil affairs in our local area. So we ended up at QS Air Base in northern Iraq at Nineveh Province. And, you know, it's a funny story. One day, this old man and a boy showed up at our gate and with a note saying that he used to get water uh, and and from the base we were occupying. And of course, they weren't anymore. And there was also bullets laying in their village from our own infantry set up a range pointing at their village, which is bad. Yeah, <laughs> so sounds bad. I, uh, yeah, I made my, uh, luckily I had a pilot at the time who spoke Arabic. He had been a former tourist. We went out, made our way. Seriously, one thing leads to another. And within two, three months, we're building schools. I built a clinic. Uh, eventually, we would build with, uh, in, uh, working with my boss at the 101st Aviation Brigade, um, 24 schools, two clinics, roads, delivered water, to 30 villages. It was you know, an impressive operation. Wow. About two, three months into it, my partner in crime, uh, Dr. Muhammad, who was a local sheikh, spoke English, came to me, says, uh, you know, the word's out. <laughs> and uh, Al-Qaeda has put out a, uh, a bounty on your head. I think it was $25,000 is what he told me. Um, so it, it puts it in perspective. Now, obviously, you're a soldier. You're in combat. And I think a lot of people try to write this off as, well, of course, the enemy is trying to kill you. But I think what they're missing the point of this and what it did to us as we thought about this and my interpreter, Bassam, which to caveat this entire story, every one of them is dead. Bassam was beheaded oh in 2004. God. Dr. Muhammad was killed in the clinic I built for him in 2012. It's a very dangerous place. These are but Iraqis. My Iraqi partners. Yeah. Every single one of the Iraqi partners I work with eventually uh, met their fate uh, because they worked with me, which is um, devastating. 
the thing about the bounties though is it turns a combat operation into a merc- you know mercenary operation and you know these are look people are poor people are dirt poor especially then right there there was no work uh, the unemployment was like ridiculous now you take an average farmer who was not involved in this, had no political feelings about the Americans or not, but you talk about a $25,000 bounty, and suddenly he becomes a killer. And, and that's the real issue everybody's missing, is it's not that the Taliban weren't trying to kill us. Of course they are. But when you add in the extra sauce of a bit of money, it turns everybody into a killer. And so you find yourself going to these villages. And I've visited different villages all the time. You know, my, one of my favorite stories of Bassam, who was murdered, uh, Bassam was a Christian from Mosul. And he kind of kept me straight. So one day we visited a village down in uh, the southern part of our province. Hadn't been down there much, but it was really known as a Bathist area. And uh, the the sheikh, what happened? I go to one village to be sheikhs lined up for the next village. And the sheikh came to me and says, you know, hey, you know, Major Welmy, why don't you come to our village, um, visit? And uh, I said, yeah, sure. I said, and I was tired. I said, Bassam, tell him we'll be there at two o'clock on Thursday. He says, no. I said, Bassam, I'm tired. Just put it in the calendar. <laughs> two o'clock. He goes, he goes yeah. no, we don't know who these people are. You know, we tell them two o'clock Thursday, wow. they're waiting for us. We get killed. You go, I said, you know, Basam, I get that, but you know, they're making a cook a sheep, <laughs> you know, <laughs> waiting for us. And he says, he says, and there, it's going to be the title of my book someday. He says, Major Wellman, it is better the sheep gets cold than we get killed. <laughs> and uh, uh, that's great advice. And, and I de- it goes, so, wow. you know, I, I, I did my duty, but I came home and I inadvertently over a beer one night told my wife that there was a bounty on my head while I was there. Well, guess what? I went back for two more tours and that bounty still existed. And it just changes the dynamics. So now you've got the soldier wondering, wow. the soldier's wondering if every person is going to kill him. And you got the family at home wondering my god you know my husband's got a price on his head it's one thing to be in combat but another so i think the aspect of this it's not it's it's no longer just a symmetrical war of ideas correct now it's got money now it's about hey you know i can i gotta feed look hey people gotta feed their families you know it's it's just how it is i get that and and when you add that money bounty in there that's the thing that's the missing point i see in a lot of these conversations is it turns everyone into someone who's a potential enemy and not just just the people who normally have the guns. So it's it's especially horrifying and disheartening to see the president of the United States not only not doing anything. Let's let's be very honest. People say how he hasn't acted. What I think it's 59 days today. 59 days since the article came out. That article was confirmed. The information is confirmed by at least five other media outlets using separate sources to include those in the United Kingdom. And has not only not done anything, he's actually pushed back on the story, called it a hoax, and looked for the sources. And and meanwhile, we find yeah. out a little leak from Pompeo because that's how he tries to you know save his reputation that he actually talked yeah. to his counterpart about it. So we've got yeah. a real. I mean, think about that. The commander in chief of the United States military cares so little for our lives. He's he's more interested in calling something a hoax than actually doing anything about it. And as recently as the Jonathan Swan interview, the Axios interview, which was sort of masterful on Swan's part, he said that he was never briefed on the bounties and that if the intelligence had reached his desk, he would have done something. Well, Mr. President, it's there. You know know about about it it. now. And we know top White House officials were aware uh, as early as early 19, early, early 2019. Uh, White House's National Security Council discussed the bounties at an interagency meeting in March 2020. It's been in his presidential daily brief, the PDB, uh, in 2020. Which he doesn't read. Which he doesn't read. And and I think the AP reported that John Bolton told his colleagues that he briefed Trump on the intelligence in March of 2019. Not this year, over a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's how long this has been going on. And as we look tonight at the, the land of heroes is their theme. 
at the Republican National Convention in the context of celebrating American heroes. I mean, it's obviously hypocritical that the president was so disinterested in protecting our troops that he claims he never knew about the bounties when it appeared in multiple intelligence documents. But how should we be thinking about the shamelessness of using this this idea that America is a land of heroes to frame the president's re-election campaign. Well, it's incredibly frustrating. And this is the way it's been the entire administration. It's always been symbolic. It's always been about the military power, but not the actual caring to be commander-in-chief. You know, it's funny. There's this, there's this great, there's this allegorical story about how, uh, I think, early in the Obama administration, one of his senior advisors asked an admiral for a drink in an event. Or, or the, the famous story of how back in the Clinton days, you know, they, you know, somebody said they didn't want military people around. But the truth is, this administration has done exactly worse in many ways. There are no military advisors in the White House. You know, President Obama and, and the Biden administration had four directors of veteran military affairs, four in a row. Every year they had a new guy for a full four-year term. Worked right in the West Wing, worked with the military service organizations, worked with the veteran service organizations. Didn't get even, didn't even replace that. You had joining forces, Dr. Biden's amazing campaign in the White House. I remember having a discussion at the very last event I was ever invited to, which was Veterans Day breakfast the first year they were in office, which was not in the White House. It was over at the Chamber of Commerce. They, Pence didn't show up. Trump didn't show up. Uh, they had Shulkin run at the VA secretary. And I remember getting in an argument, essentially, with uh, one of the White House staffers about joining forces. And, you know, what are you going to do to replace this? It was a great program. I was like, well, you know, we looked at the metrics and it didn't do anything. It's like, give me a break. <laughs> you know, home, yeah. uh, unemployment was reduced yeah. by 50% under the Biden, Obama and Biden administration. Homelessness yeah. was reduced yeah. by 50% under the Obama and Biden administration. And then the Trump administration came in and have basically not even bothered to hire somebody to even reach out to our community. And, and it, I know it seems like inside baseball, but it matters because it means they're not listening to us. They have no interest in listening to us. So the entire hypocrisy of this administration comes down to the fact that they just assume and have always made the assumption that no matter what they do, they'll always have the military and veteran to vote. And unfortunately, a lot of my, a lot of my peers do feel that way. But you're definitely seeing a change in those numbers as people go, wait a minute, you know, the gold star family issue, which, you know, it, the, the, the issue of, of, of being a commander in chief, having interest in being commander in chief, um, issuing orders by tweet. Um, the transgender ban came out in a series of four tweets. First time I at DOD had heard it was coming. I mean, it's just outrageous. Well, it, it also is a bit complicated for military personnel, I think, and you can speak mm -hmm. to this a bit, to, you know, we talk about the, the president sort of taking for granted that they're always going to have the military vote, right? But how can a sitting president claim to support the troops but not confront a foreign leader putting a bounty on soldiers' heads right. after it's... It's right. the ultimate duty. Yeah, it's the ultimate duty. And so military folks have a, have a certain yep. code um, uh, about speaking up publicly, especially when you're Correct. active duty, right? It's so, I don't know, I don't know, I don't have the right word for it, but for the president to stand up and use this idea, basically use the goodwill that American men and women in uniform have in the, in the zeitgeist, um, knowing full well that they can't speak up politically to oppose the president, it, it's just revolting. And it's, it feels so yeah. abusive. And it leaves me. guys like me to kind of, 
you know, pick up the pick up the pick up the slack, you know, and that's what we've done. And right. I've been very vocal right. for a while now. <laughs> and 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 it's and it's tough because you you know and it, you want to make it clear. Like, look, look, I respect I respect the military. I respect the military chain of command. I respect you know. I I'm very fortunate. The the chief of staff of the army, you know, General McConville. We were staff officers together in Hawaii back in 1998. You know, I, I've known a lot of these guys for years. These men who are generals now and women who are generals were actually my peers. Um, four stars for god's sake and it kills me to, it just absolutely breaks my heart they have to sit in silence and serve for someone who has he's never even bothered to learn our culture who's never haven't bothered to respect the moral compass that drives what we do as service members and the sacrifice you make he doesn't yeah, have one he, he have has one no empathy and yeah. you see you see that empathy gap and that understanding gap and everything he does it's 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 impossible not to see it, and and you have to be willfully ignorant to ignore the fact that he has made no efforts whatsoever to understand us, uh, simply to use us. Okay, before we talk about Gold Star Families, let's talk about our friend Dan Barkov, yeah. uh, who's been on the podcast, um, and uh, you know it was just a few weeks ago, and we talked about the bounties. And one of the things he said is that other presidents of both parties, both parties, would have called Putin immediately after they heard about this. In fact, we saw Joe Biden talk about the bounty scandal in his acceptance speech at the DNC, and he got visibly angry as he talked about it. Can you reflect on the difference between a sitting president ignoring the bounties and Joe Biden's comments? You know, I was very impressed by Mr. Biden, Mr. President Biden. Uh, you know, I've actually had to, you know, I've met him a number of times of the years. I met him when oh, I was, really? a, yeah, I met him when I was a serving Lieutenant Colonel in the Army serving as a public affairs officer in Iraq. He came over on a Senate visit and met him as a senator. And we disagreed. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to pretend. Yeah. I'm not gonna, he, I, he had an idea, <laughs> I think, to break Iraq into three parts. I remember literally saying to him, I said, sir, you know that's not possible, right? <laughs> I mean, it's a great idea, but we can't do that. We're, you know, we're, not, we're not in the government of Iraq. <laughs> you know, so I'm not going to pretend I was like a Biden fan. You know? But by the same point, it's decency. You saw the visible anger, anger in his eyes because yeah. as a human and as a leader, and, and, yeah. and most importantly, here's what you got to remember, Ron. He's a blue star dad. He sent a son to Iraq in 2009. Bo served. And, and, and the yeah. feeling of a military family, when you have a son in combat, like I did. So I'm a, I'm a veteran. Yeah. My son is a veteran. My son-in-law still serves in the National Guard. He spent a year. Here's, the, here's how sad our situation is with the Forever War. I went into Iraq on day two in 2003 with the 101st Airborne Division. My oh, wow. son-in-law came out of Iraq on day minus two in 2012 at the end of OIF. Okay? So we have a multi-generational war in my family. Right. So I've sat at home waiting for my son-in-law to come home. I sat at home on, in August three years ago as my son-in-law served in Charlottesville with the Virginia National Guard guarding a damn statue as Unite the Right. So, so I have, I know that visceral feeling of being a parent as you send your child to war. And that's the thing about Biden. Biden, no, why is Biden angry? Because he's waited for a son to come home. He's waited for a son. He's waited for that fateful knock. My first wife who passed away in uh, 2004, when I was in Desert Storm, we lost two of our, I lost two of my men in the air war. It was terrible. And there was a rule that then, first of all, we didn't have, you know, cell phones. We didn't have email then, right? So they had to wait for the call. And there's, there was a rule that the wives would all, it was actually common knowledge, all the spouses of our service members would wait till nine o'clock at night because after nine, the casualty assistance officers weren't allowed to knock on your door. So if you made it to nine, right? You made it nine o'clock, you were clear for the day. So the funny story that Jen used to tell was at 9.04 one night, the damn doorbell rings. 
And she opens the door and it was a pizza delivery guy who misidentified the apartment and went to the wrong apartment. And he got his ears blown back with this tiny little Irish girl. <laughs> you know, <laughs> because, you know, what the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, and, uh, and the poor guy had no idea what he walked into. You know, and oh. She was tiny. I mean, she was a fierce little tiny Irish girl. But again, it goes back to circling back to the point you made earlier, right? Why was Bi- why did you see fear and anger in Biden's eyes? Because he's been in our shoes. He sent us on to war. Trump, no one named Trump has ever served the United States military or any military, right? He avoided Vietnam with bone spurs. He made jokes about the fact that he avoided Vietnam. So when Trumps have had a chance to serve, they failed. They have not. And in this case, I mean, it's, I think what's so interesting about this election, Ron, is we do have this strange circumstance. And, you know, let's be honest, Democrats aren't well known for being national security types. Right. They're not known for serving. You know, right. there's yeah. a lot more veterans. You see, but, but never at the president level since freaking what, JFK, I suppose, or Carter, I should say, excuse me, Carter was a naval officer. Have we had a service, you know, that connection service? But here we have the dichotomy of a Trump who's never served and a Biden family, which gave a son to the military. And he died of cancer later, which could very well have been from the toxic exposures we had downrange. You don't know. But I think that, for me, drives so much of this decision for me as a veteran. What I tell my peers in the military community is like, we've really got somebody who understands our community better than most. He sent us on to war. That's why you saw anger in his eyes. Because he's been that guy anxiously waiting, even as vice president of the United States or a senator, waiting for that fateful visit from a casualty assistance officer to find out your son was killed. I'm telling you, there's, there's no experience like it. It's empathy, Fred, yes. and it's it's a word I think after this election, every American will know and understand well because yep. I think for the first time, we have a really glaring example of the consequences of electing a man as your commander-in-chief who isn't capable of empathizing, Correct. who, who, who has no respect for, for human life um, it except his own. Yeah. And, and your measure, your worth is measured in what you've done for him. Yeah. Not at all yeah. lately. And, and that's where you get into, that's where you see these things of what I, I've, I've been very angry about with this administration, a lot of things, let's be honest. But <laughs> what I've been angry about is the way they've treated service. So uh, a perfect example was recently, um, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, you know, uh, there was an argument with Mercedes Schlapp, uh, mm. with Brianna Keeler uh, on CNN. And I don't know if you know, but Brianna's husband is a serving special forces officer. He's a colonel in the United States Army. I did not know that. Actually, an old friend of mine, ironic. We went to grad school together. So recently, uh, they got a little tiff on TV about uh, the voting rights. You know, who knows? Mercedes left. She's always angry about something. Yeah. So Mercedes wrote an op-ed, a real clear politics tonight. But buried in the op-ed, attacking Ms. Keeler and her point of, of vote, she says, oh, by the way, she doesn't mention she's married to a serving Green Beret who served on Obama's National Security Council and has written horrible things, is, is disloyal to President Trump. Unfortunately, Ms. Schlapp had used the wrong guy's name on Twitter, and it wasn't actually brianna's husband that wrote those tweets he's never done that and by the way he was a director on trump's national security council so what bothered wow. me about this is this 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 advisor to, to the pr- trump campaign someone who's never served in any way shape or form felt it was okay to attack a, the wife of a service member that service member destroy his career in an attempt to ruin a tv anchor and, and it, it was okay it, it's just okay could you imagine the republican party we grew up with attacking serving service members who've served honorably he's been or he's been in afghanistan like nine freaking times 
And, and, and it was just a casual little, just casual toss off three sentences. You know, I'm just going to destroy this guy's career. And I think that really gets to what we see with this administration. They're just more than happy to toss any of us aside if we don't i joke about it if you're a game of thrones fan you know you have to bend the knee right yeah it's not good enough to bend, not good the, enough knee. To bend the knee you have to be useful <laughs> you ha- oh you have to yeah. say how shiny his uh i gotta be fine i'm not a crew turn <laughs> <laughs> how shiny his pants are you know it- it's not good enough to bend the knee it- you have to be over the top and it's just I've-, I've just never i never believed in my heart i would see republicans and republican administration so willingly to use and frankly destroy military service members' lives if it isn't if it's useful to them in their political mark games. And that's what this administration does without even blinking an eye. Okay, let's talk about Gold Star families. Because this convention is not the first time that Trump has used this <laughs> this gaslighting tactic yeah. when it comes to support for the military. As we all remember, in November of 2019, Trump was giving a speech in commemoration of Veterans Day when he said, To every Gold Star family, we will stand by your side forever. Prior to that, Trump told Gold Star families that their son would still be alive had Trump been president in 2003 and that soldiers knew what they had signed up for. Yeah, the David Johnson's wife. I don't know that there's any group of people in America who are talked about as heroes more often than the troops who give their lives to protect our country in the context of celebrating heroes, which is what they're doing tonight. How troublesome are Trump's comments toward Gold Star families? Well, he just has never, it, it, again, you know, the thing about this administration is you have to talk about actions and words, right? They love throwing words out. He loves throwing out loan the troops. He loves, he loves, you know, humping the flag. It's just, you know, it's all just, it's just actions speak loud. And the actions are so obvious, you know, yeah. the actions from, from the attack on Kizir, you know, Captain, you know, Captain Khan's family. I mean, here's a gentleman, here's a captain who stood out, saved his men, was killed by a suicide bomber. His parents are heartbroken. They, 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 they state their opinion. He can't resist. He can't resist saying something shitty to him, you know, for, you know, terrible, you know, then you go forward to the David Johnson in 2017, where he calls her up a widow who's grieving, who just lost her husband, a young woman. I mean, and see, that's the story we failed to act. You know, these young men, these 19, these 20 year old men and their widows are, are 21. They're caregivers when they're wounded are kids. I have kids younger than many of these spouses are now taking over as caregivers or their, or their gold star wives, their widows at 21, 20 years old. This is not. These, this is a very uh, tough, tough folks. Yeah. And, and just so casually say, well, you know what he signed up for. Yeah. Just as recently as um, what, three weeks ago, we yeah. lost nine service members off the coast of California in a horrible training accident when their vehicle, their amphibious vehicle sunk off the coast of California. They were lost on Friday. We, lost, we know that one, at least one died Friday night. They found the bodies. They decided the rest of them dead on Sunday. Trump didn't say a word. He didn't say a word till finally we started abusing a bunch of my peers and I started saying things on Twitter and Tuesday afternoon, he put out a single tweet, clearly not written by him because it was a coherent sentence talking about how, oh, it's so sad. These guys got killed. They just don't care. And so to act like he cares about gold star families is so obvious. It's funny. Timing's everything. Just yesterday. Um, two days ago, uh, I, you know, I worked with, I had the good fortune to work with an organization called Tragedy Assistant Program for Survivors, tra- TAPS, uh, run by an amazing, a remarkable woman, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, uh, Bonnie Carroll, actually worked under Reagan, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you know, and, yeah. and, and it's a great organization who takes care of those who have fallen in combat. And, and, and I let to know so many of our Gold Star families through them. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking what they do 
and the people that service them do. And so one of them, Amy, as a friend of mine, her brother was killed in 2006. It's a great story back in May of 2010, uh, Memorial Day of that year, when Vice President Biden and his family visited Arlington National Cemetery and spent time in Section 60, where the global war on terror uh, lost or all buried. He was there to meet the families of the fallen. He met all the families. He listened to wow. their stories. He hugged their kids. He, there's a wonderful picture of him leaning over a gravestone talking to a gold star family, providing empathy, providing understanding of what they've gone through. And, and it's so clear that he actually cares that this is a man who cares. And I go back to my own experience with vice with president Bush. So I'm a young officer, got back from Iraq, 2003, uh, 2004, I guess. And uh, I got tasked to escort the president. Don't even ask how that happened. (laughs) And one of the things that, how exciting was that? I ended up with Carl Rove all day. That was a unique experience. (laughs) Uh, But so one of the things that President and Mrs. Bush used to do is if they visited a military base, they would have all of our Gold Star families meet them. So that we set up all of our Gold Star families from that very first tour in Iraq. This is 2004. And we set them up in our museum at Fort Campbell, spaced about 20 feet apart. And Mr. and Mrs. Bush, President Bush, met every family for two and a half hours. They walked slowly through the museum, meeting every single family and listened to them. Some of them yelled at him. Some of them cursed him for sending their husband to war, their son to war. We had to rotate. The White House, I remember talking, I was standing with Karl Rove, and then the photographers would rotate out because they'd become so emotionally overcome they couldn't take pictures anymore, right? And what did President and Mrs. Bush do? They took it. They had the conversations, and they were brutal conversations, and they accepted that they had sent these men and women off to war. And I had such respect for Mr. Bush for doing that, right? And I can't imagine a scenario on this God's oh, green earth God. where Trump and Melania would walk through a military museum talking to the family members of Gold Star families. That's the empathy we yeah. miss. That's the empathy we deserve yeah. in a president. Yeah. Yeah. And you know whatever you want to say about policies and positions, in the end, we have a clear choice. Empathy and care for our military or service members and the Biden family yeah. and whatever the hell this is in the Trump family. Yeah. Would you, while we're on this topic, would you briefly tell the story of uh the the johnson story for our listeners yeah um in case that's not well known yeah it's been it's, it's important to remind people these stories have been two or three years yeah. so back in october of 2017 uh, you may a lot of people don't remember we had a special forces team that was escorting local uh, indigenous forces in africa um and they got through a, a, a series of ridiculous mishaps were sent essentially into an ambush uh, by local Al-Qaeda affiliated insurgents. Um, a horrible firefight broke out where these men had to flee for their lives without air cover, um, eventually killing all four of them. Um, one was missing for a while before his ident- body was found. He was identified. That young man was a, a young um, young black soldier named LaDavid Johnson. Um, so flash forward a few days, uh, they are going to the funeral, actually. His widow is going to his funeral, and President Trump decides to call and wish her well, and ended up being a giant scandal at the time because he called and apparently courted this widow and a congresswoman who was with him couldn't seem to remember the young man's name. Oh my god! And actually said at some point, "Well, you know, that's what just that he knew he signed up for." Essentially, kind of writing saying, "Oh, wow. he got killed, but gosh darn, that's what you get." You know, it, it was just it was so off putting. The widow was crying. Um, the congresswoman, you know, of course, gotten a. a pissing match at general kelly at the time who's not the adult in the room by the way yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. and and it ended up being a pretty large a pretty 
decent scandal so very early, very early in the Trump administration. And, it, and I think it just sent such a signal that that the, he has no idea what he's doing. And it also sends a signal, too, that really disturbed me when, when General Kelly, the, the chief of staff of the White House, stepped into the fight yeah. and ended up lying about a congresswoman. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and I remember everybody was as this hopefulness that, oh, we got General Kelly, we got General Mattis, they're going to yeah. save the day. Right. And what you find is once you step into the administration, all that goes out the window. Yeah. You serve Trump yeah. and, you ser- and you're loyal to Trump. If you don't, you get tossed aside. And yeah. uh, it was a horrifying experience. And I think it really set the tone for us. We all, not, we all saw, a lot of us in the community, in the military community said, ah, there it is in action. This is, this is what we feared during the election campaign. That this, we said, this is what we're going to get. And, and of course, you proved us right. Let's talk about Colonel Vindman. We've talked about the hypocrisy of claiming to support troops while doing nothing to stop bounties by a foreign nation and insulting Gold Star families. I want to look at the hypocrisy that is played out in the treatment of a particular service member, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, who I think most people know now. And you know, we at the Lincoln Project made an ad about this uh, when we learned in early July that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman retired from the military following a campaign of bullying, intimidation, and retaliation by a president and his allies. After 21 years of military service, he testified in the impeachment inquiry late last year. He, he told lawmakers that he raised alarms inside the Trump administration about the phone call, the famous, infamous phone call between Trump and Ukrainian President Zelensky. Um, and you remember after he testified, Trump took to Twitter to say that Vindman was very insubordinate and that he was given a horrendous report by his superior. He wasn't. Nope. As his direct supervisor, Fiona Hill, said, he displayed excellent judgment. Yep. And John Bolton told MSNBC that he thought Vindman merited promotion. Yep. Can you talk about this campaign of bullying led by the commander-in-chief toward an army officer and how it impacted Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and his family? Because I think you know him. I do. Yeah, I've been very fortunate to get to know Alex and his wife, Rachel, who's... Uh, a force of nature all of her own. <laughs> um, you know, don't don't mess with an army wife. Just just let me warn you now. <laughs> just as as so you know, don't mess with an army wife. I also don't mess with a marine wife. That's another story. But um, yeah, no, the I've I've really been fortunate to get to know Alex recently. Um, I tease him as he's he's a he's he's a boy scout. You know, uh, I'm a little bit rough around the edges. Alex, truly, the guy you saw in Congress that day, the guy who said that inspiring sentence that yeah. has inspired many, it may have been my next tattoo, yeah. which was, you know, this is America here, right matters. Yes, what, that is yes. that is that is so Alex. That's really who he is. He he is as good and as honorable a man as an officer as you'll ever meet. Um, and and I don't say that lightly because I know a lot of them. I, you know, I've been involved in the military thirty five years, and I I got to tell you, it's it, it's he is as good a man as you might imagine. And so to see him do his duty and serve his country and stick by the code of honor and responsibility that we are all trained from the day we become a cadet. Um, is is horrifying and it, it just goes to the larger issue the politicization of the military under this administration and it goes to that issue we talked about earlier is like what have you done for me today and so what's really scary and what's what's really horrifying is the campaign it was a campaign it, it didn't end when he was unceremoniously and his brother marched out of the white house 
that's fine. But it was also Mark Meadows, this worthless chief of staff, trying to spread stories about him, calling up reporters, trying to dig up dirt on him and his brother. They've continued this campaign to discredit a evil, a, you know, a man who did his duty, who served his country with honor. They can't let it go. And, and so they've ruined a good career, a man who deserved to be serving. And then the final caveat, all the final coda is the most disgusting one of them all, which is why my Twitter bio says former junior employee of the army is when Kaylee McEnany gets before the podium, someone who I don't even want to talk about her, but <laughs> to say, I don't want to talk about a former junior employee. You got to be kidding me. The national security council I mean, even he was a lieutenant colonel. Okay, we aren't we aren't high ranking guys, you know. Twenty, 20 he actually served twenty one years. Um, I did twenty two. Yeah, lieutenant colonel isn't exactly you know, but it's it's not a junior employee by any means. When you get to be a desk officer on the National Security Council in the White House, that's the epitome of the career of someone who specializes. It's a big deal. It's the epitome of a career for what we call foreign area officer. Okay, they serve in embassies and they serve in the, eventually the National Security Council. So he is. This was a man at the top of his career. In a very important position, this is a man who's writing policy for the United States of America, reference our, our allies and our enemies in Russia. So he was no damn junior employee. So to see this person who can't even do a gotcha question without reading out of a book, for God's sake, to say that someone like Colonel Vindman was a junior employee who has the Purple Heart from getting blown up in Iraq, who served his country honorably, it's just, it just goes to everything we say about this administration. Yes, it's just it's, it's meant to put you in your place. The point of that statement, the point of her saying that, was to make sure we all know that if you're in uniform, you don't count unless you bend the knee. And I think it really, so what happened to Alex is such a, a perfect book. It just shows exactly how this administration works. The, the, the rottenness to the core and the disrespect for service and how little it means that service means to them. And I, I, it's just horrifying. A good family. And I, and I pray he's going to, I mean, I, I, you know, he's a tough son of a bitch. Uh, his wife's tougher. I, I, they're going to be fine. You know, they got a nine-year-old daughter. They, they got the family support. They've got a lot of us supporting them. I think he's going to be good. But it just, it's just horrifying to see a military career end um, because of the bitterness of a, a, an angry, angry man. You know, it's, it, it seems to me, maybe you can talk a little bit about this, Fred, because I'm, I'm sure you've, you've thought about it a lot. But it seems to me that there's almost, given what we know about Donald Trump, that there's almost no way we could expect anything different from him because his entire personality puts him at odds with the ethos of the U.S. military. For Trump, we know this. Everything is a TV show to him. Everything is, is, a, is a TV show and nothing matters unless you're making him look good on his own TV show. And the U.S. military is it, it's the polar opposite of, of that kind of value structure. Can can you talk like there was there was bound to be a clash here uh, when the because the commander in chief fundamentally does not comprehend cannot comprehend the uh, the ethical structure of the armed services. Correct. Yeah, and it, and I think that was the hope that everybody had that Mattis got hired. Right, he'd be the adult in the room that provide a buffer. Um, we saw that worked out. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm not. You know, it, yeah. it didn't, you know, and, and now you've got Secretary Esper who, you know, it's just a speed bump. Um, I think we see where's the culmination of all that Lafayette Square. Uh, to me, the incident at Lafayette Square says so much. And that whole day says so much about the way that Trump has bent the military to his will. The attorney general of the United States on camera marched out, you know, told them to clear that square. No matter how much they lie about it, it was on camera. We all saw him walk out there. 
Two hours later, peaceful protesters, including clergy, are being you know attacked while the military stands there, going, "What is happening?" This is the famous Bible photo op. The Bible photo op, you know. And then a lot of people who are not military insiders don't realize that later that night, what for me ended up causing a lot of grief because I, I don't think you really mentioned it, but I used to be an aviator. I was I was actually a helicopter pilot for most of my career. I did not mention that. Yeah, I was a scout helicopter pilot and then I was a, a Blackhawk helicopter pilot uh, in, in Iraq. And, and I don't know if a lot of you realize, but that night they sent National Guard helicopters in to what we call dust the crowds. They used, they used a medevac helicopter. So think about this for a second. <laughs> they used a medevac helicopter, a, a helicopter with red crosses on the side hovered over the crowds in D.C. to disperse crowds by the order of, they're not sure who yet, because they're still investigating it. They but still don't point, know? They haven't publicly said who ordered it. There's an investigation. There's always an investigation. You know? And so, at some point, someone ordered, amp- think about it, an ambulance, <laughs> an air ambulance, to hover dangerously, extremely dangerously, low altitude inside of a city, which we would never do, to hover over crowds of dust, just like we would do in Iraq. We, we, we did that in Iraq to disperse rioters who were shooting at our troops. You don't do that over peaceful Americans who just happen to be out after curfew. And so the bending of the military to the Trumpism is right there for everyone to see. And a lot of, a lot of people who didn't, you know, they, they focus on the day's events at Lafayette Square. But many of us who served understood the real impact was seeing a helicopter with red crosses on the side of it. Yeah. Yeah. dusting out American citizens inside our nation's capital. What a horrifying sight. And I think in a lot of ways, maybe, just maybe, General Milley at that point realized this was bad. Because Milley, you know, you know, General Milley, the ch- chairman of the Joint Chiefs, ended up apologizing for his participation in the Lafayette Square debacle um, in a speech a week later, which is interesting. He still got a job. But it just goes right. That whole day goes to exactly the, it's the culmination. And then you saw it again at West Point, his speech at West Point. I've graduated from West Point. I've been to a few graduations, right? We didn't have military equipment at graduation, but no, the Trump graduation, first he calls cadets back from leave to have to go to two weeks of quarantine because of COVID. Then he has a speech on the parade ground and they got all these freaking tanks and armored vehicles lined up. I mean, it's West Point. We, they had to ship those in. I mean, think about that for a second. They shipped military vehicles to West Point so they could have a pretty parade, you know, so he could look like a tough guy in front of his military equipment. It's just so we you know. have we have this reaction, obviously, that this is this is so horrific uh, that no other president would would even dream of doing something like this. But can you talk a little bit about the consequences of this type of can we call it abuse of the military, yeah. abuse of power? What are the consequences both to the to the military? to the structure of you know our american institutions what what are the what are the long-term implications of this kind of use of the military it's it's so corrosive i mean the, one of the things that we all a lot of the, the military is very proud of the fact that in poll after poll year after year the most respected american institution is the united states military like yeah Next to nothing. Yeah. Post office. Ironically, the post office too. <laughs> Which so, we're going to talk about. We'll talk about yeah. that next. Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, the two top ones are the post office and the army. And now they're working, you know, get to love how issues collide. Uh, but so the military is one of our most respected. And, and that matters. That matters because it's an all, first of all, it's an all volunteer force. You, you, you have to volunteer to go to my. So if the military isn't trusted, it, look, if America's mothers and fathers can't believe that if they're going to give their children, and that's the way we talk about this sacred trust. There's a sacred trust that we're going to take America's children, our sons and daughters, my sons and daughters, by, uh, to be honest, and we're going to take care, we're going to bring them into a very dangerous business, but we're going to train them, we're going to equip them, and we're going to only use them in a manner that befits their service to the nation, 
right? And that is why the military is a respected institution. They stay out of politics. They, you know, serve the Constitution. They swear an oath to the Constitution, not the president. Contrary to how much Trump wants you to believe it, the oath is to the Constitution. And he has managed in three and a half years to bend that. And you see, you see these troubling things, Lafayette Square, the helicopter incident, the, the, the parades, the flyovers for his little political campaigns. You know, it, it's, it's this bending of the military to his political will. They're going to have to bend at some point. Um, and I won't get into military culture as far as generals going along with this, because <laughs> that's a whole other topic. <laughs> uh, but, but having said that, at what point does that trust our United States military begin to freaking fade? And at what point does that mean our sons and daughters will not join? And then we've got a real problem because the thing we talk about a lot in the military is, you know, under this administration, there's so many things that have gone wrong. We haven't talked about the moldy housing issues that have gone ignored. We haven't talked about the cuts to our healthcare, okay, kicking yeah. military families out of military. They're, they're, the things they've done yeah. inside the military completely belie any truth or anything yeah. they're saying about supporters. But yeah. Something like 70% of new service members come from military families now. It's a generational wow. business, like me. Wow. I'm the son of a War II Marine, okay? Wellmans have served in the United States military and even the predecessor of the United States military since the French and Indian War. Believe it or not, we only missed Vietnam, right? So my son was a, a, in the 82nd Airborne. My son-in-law is in the Virginia National Guard. The military is a family business. So at what point does the politicization and the abuse of the military mean that next generation says, you know what? No. Right? I was talking to a friend of mine. She's a Green Beret wife. Uh, they had moldy housing uh, at one of their bases. And the doctors believe the mold in that house, the black mold, gave their youngest son asthma or lung issues. And now he, so he's not qualified to serve now. So his father was a Green Beret. His grandfather was a Green Beret. Okay, so they've been Green Berets as long as Green Berets, and he dreamed of being Green Beret. And now, because of this ridiculous issue with military housing being moldy and being ignored, we've got a young man who never serves. So, how many are like that, Ron? How many are seeing what's going on and say, you know what? So, we say it today today's issues are 10 years from now recruiting a problem, right? So, the issues we're dealing with in the military today, what Trump is doing, everybody thinks ah, it'll go away when he leaves office. It really isn't that simple. The damage he does now, and I got to tell you, the damage he'll do in a second term, I can't even, th we will not have <sighs> I know. a United States military in the form it is now in 10 years. This it's generational. Of, this is part of the conversation that I think demands uh, more airtime because we spend so much time right, rightfully being outraged about, about every single scandal. Right. But we don't spend enough time talking about the long-term consequences because even when he's gone, this stuff is going to have a ripple effect. That's my fear. That, that's exactly what I, I, mean, I talk about it quite a bit. Um, you know, you see it in little, I see it because I'm hypersensitive because I'm a server, you know, yeah, but I'll see yeah. it in the way, the way a public affairs officer treats the press, right? Uh, there's one guy I've been very harsh on who's a, a lieutenant colonel in the United States Army who was like bashing a, a reporter on Twitter. It's like, well, time out. It's so inappropriate. It, it's, we serve the American people. It's not the other way around. Right. So this insidiousness that's creeped, this insidious Trumpism that's creeping into the ranks that goes unpunished is my, I, I, that's what keeps guys like me who are veterans advocates and, and passionate about. It. And by the way, the father of a service member, that's what keeps us at night, right? Is what is the long term impact and how do we get rid of that? I mean, what is the price we pay for the next administration, where they are, and the next one, the next one? I, I yeah, it's a, this, a second term. The idea of a second term as commander in chief keeps me up at night. Yeah. The idea of a second term 
for a lot of other reasons, including right. this one. It's just, I mean, d- the military implications alone are yeah. should be terrifying. It's it's it is it is it will set a cold shoulder in your spine. You think about if he has to does if he doesn't even have to pretend to care anymore. Oh my god! God knows what could happen. Okay, you're just full of cheer today, Brad. <laughs> yeah, on a positive <laughs> note, you know, how, how was the play, Mrs. Lincoln? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's... My favorite joke. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to the, the United States Postal Service. So the last thing we're going to talk about today because of the impact of the changes at the USPS on veterans. Because, you know, we've done a lot on this topic with regard yeah. to voting and the slowdown in mail and the... And uh, and sort of the 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 length of time it's going to take for ballots to be delivered. But I want to talk today about the implications for veterans because the VA fills about eighty percent of veteran prescriptions by mail. Correct. That's for folks to wrap your head around this. That's one hundred and twenty million prescriptions per year. Yep. Do these deliveries arrive daily to about three hundred and thirty thousand veterans yep. across the country? Daily. Daily. Every day. Veterans are reporting much longer wait times already on their medications. Um, and 31 Democratic senators wrote a letter to mm. Postmaster General DeJoy calling him, uh, calling on him to assess how the mail delays impact vets. Um, what's your reaction to the administration allowing veterans who need medication to be collateral damage in a move essentially to steal an election. That's it. You know, I, I, I've been very fortunate. I've been involved in this issue very early. I, I, uh, the wonderful thing about being a longtime veterans advocate is you have a lot of folks that know you. And one of my mm-hmm. friends who works at VA sent me a note one day. I said, hey, have you heard that um, we're getting reports here at VA that some veterans are having their prescriptions delayed two to three weeks? I, I said, that's a really big thing. I mean, let's say, let's just worst case scenario, you're on antidepressants yeah. because you've had suicidal ideations in the yeah. past. Two to three weeks, that means you weaned off your drugs. Yes. Things get ugly fast at that yes. point, right? So I tweeted it out. I said, hey, who's hearing this, by the way? I've, I, a friend tells me this, and it blew up. I mean, I had, I think there's 50,000 likes in this tweet alone. Whoa. The, the, over 1,000, 2,000 responses, people saying, yeah, me too. And, and a reporter, I, I was great, Abby Bennett, at a, a little radio outlet called Connecting Vets, picked it up, and uh, she did some research, and the story has blown up since then, and I'm 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 proud that Lincoln Project was part of that. But it is a giant issue, and I'm getting pummeled with veterans saying, "Yeah, my stuff's late." This is serious. I, I think what bothered me, and 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 what they're trying to get away with, Ron, and you get this, is what DeJoy was doing in his little conversation. And the Nevada Center, um, forgive me, I forgot her name. I'm not enough caffeine, but <laughs> she hit him pretty hard on the issue of the veterans. But what they're trying to say is, "Hey, we assure that all this will be delivered. We we can do Christmas." We can certainly do the, you know, we can certainly do the election, but they're they're all carefully avoiding timeliness. Look, yeah, you may get your prescription, but three weeks late is a death sentence. That's not going to cut it. Okay, yeah. it's not going to cut it. Yeah. Timeliness matters. So yes. they're trying to gaslight us again by saying, "Hey, look, Christmas goes from for two freaking months." My grandma would mail me my, gosh, my sister in law, I love her to death. Yeah. She sends out Christmas presents probably next week. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm going to get some weird Santa for my sister in law. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that's her jam. So yeah. to compare Christmas to the timeliness of a veteran's prescription arriving on time is complete gaslighting. Yeah. Timeliness is what matters. Yeah, a, a, a package of medicines sitting in 
a t- post office, a hot truck for four days, insulin goes bad. A lot of these medicines yeah, go bad. Right. Time. So, so they're, they're, they're gaslighting us. Yeah. They, they're telling us it's okay that they got plenty of volume. It's not the volume they have to handle. It's the timeliness they have to handle. Yeah. And that's what really angers me is, and, and somebody said to me, wow, you know, veterans aren't the only ones. You're absolutely right. Veterans are not the only one, but let's just think about quick, you know, a 77 year old Vietnam veteran who's diabetic and has antidepressants he takes because he's had some tough times, did two tours in Vietnam. Like many of us, I, I have PTSD. I've been very open about my mental health stars. You know what? I can't wait three weeks because these fools decided to, you know, cut the sorting machines and cut overtime and, and play silly games to try and save this horrible human being's election chances. And that's what we're seeing. And I, I think I think I think the reason this issue is blowing up so much lately is because for a long time we did talk about the post service delays. It's not a new issue. But dismantling sorting machines, meh, not enough overtime, meh. But when you say Okay, John Smith of the Ranger Battalions from Vietnam is not getting his medicine anymore because of these guys decided it wasn't important to deliver the mail on time every day. Now we get it. And so I was heartened to see these senators stepping up. And I've been very hard on Wilkie, Secretary Wilkie at the VA and DOD, because I don't see them doing a damn thing about it. They're saying publicly through their spokesman, their political appointee spokesman, that, oh, well, we haven't, we haven't even looked into the issue. And that's a lie. Because they told the disabled American veterans, the DAV, that they're reporting that 25% of veterans' prescriptions are delayed. They've reported publicly that they're using alternative shipping means, UPS and FedEx, to make sure they get there on time. What does that mean for cost? A letter, a letter is 50 cents. UPS, it's 20. So now they're burning the limited budget we have to take care of veterans to do a workaround from their own government. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, we don't have the money to fund the postal service, so instead we're going to pay private companies to. Right. What? We're going to burn the VA's budget to do a workaround, and and so it's it's all gaslighting. But again, once again, who's paying the price? Who's paying the price? Military family members, military service members, and veterans, and and then to go up on that stage at the convention and say, it's, yeah, it's just we love the truth. It's, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's just so disgusting. It it's impossible to reconcile the claim that Trump supports the troops when you look at, at the brazen disregard for veterans' health care. Right. And, and, and just, just ignoring it. Look, the VA has never been perfect. Okay, let's not, let's not pretend. It wasn't perfect under Obama. It wasn't perfect under Bush. It's, Obama did a lot of good things. He appointed, uh, his, last, his last appointment was a Republican, for God's sake. So they've, they've made a lot of effort to improve this thing. And all that went out the freaking window under Trump with a series of temporaries, a series of acts. He's got an acting de- deputy secretary now. Wilkie doesn't, only goes on Fox News and OAN. You know, they're, they're ducking and covering, doing their jobs. And again, who's taking care of veterans? I'm telling you right now, it's not this administration. And, and to stand on stage and play patriotic music and drag out their huge super fans, right? Which is fine. And to say they do, look, actions, words. There's a lot of words in this administration, not a lot of action. It's frustrating. So I want to mention one other point on this topic uh, before we move on, which is that on Saturday, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to provide $25 billion in funding to the USPS and to block the changes slowing down the service. Now, Mitch McConnell called the bill a stunt and said the Senate won't pass it after the White House threatened a veto. I don't know that there's anything... (laughs) to say about this, because it's, it's all just so obvious. You know, Trump and Senate Republicans taking veterans' votes for granted right. in, in this election. Right. Um, I, I just... I just want... It's not just veterans. You know, there's 18.6... Well, about 18.4 million veterans surviving in the United States right now. You know, we're losing... You know, I don't know if you guys realize, we, we lose about 30,000 veterans a month, 
right now from World War II, Korea, these, you know, World War II in their 90s, like Bob Dole's is upper 90s, you know. So we lo- we're losing the seniors at a rapid pace, uh, you know, and, and so our Vietnam generations in their 60s and 70s now. So, you know, it's a lot of the, it's an older generation. It is obviously a, a big target audience of the GOP and, they, and, and that's what they're killing. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and so to say, you know, that we that had the support and they love them and then, the, then to do, and, and after three and a half years, they're seeing, people are seeing the results and they, they do take us for granted. And, 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 you know, obviously we're, we're a patriotic group we we run conservative It's the nature of the business being a service member and being a, being a veteran. I was always a conservative. Um, but at a certain point you have to say, here's what I'm seeing with my own two eyes. You know, my prescription is late. Um, my friend got killed in combat and they could even bother to write him a letter that was obviously signed by the president. You know, it, it's just, it's to a point now where either you, it's the classic situation, this administration, you know, you hear, hear the words or believe, don't believe what you see with your own two eyes. You know, as folks are, are tuning in to watch this, you know, debacle tonight, can you talk about what has enabled Trump to talk about support for the military while at the same time behaving like they're disposable? Hmm. Well, I think what the what the Senate doing, and you mentioned McConnell in there, obviously don't care about us at all. Um, they try to roll out, well, we've we've raised their pay. Well, it, let's be very clear. The pay raise he likes to tout as the biggest is not the biggest in history. It's not even close. It's That's a complete lie, by the way. They like to tout pulling us out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Again, there's the old saying, a blind squirrel gets a nut every now and then, too. <laughs> you know, a, a broken clock is the right time once a day. I think one of the frustrations I have and a lot of my peers have is you know, a lot of us are tired of the forever war. OK, the idea, the idea that we're still on the same authorization of the utilization of military force, AUMF, from 9-11 yeah. today in yeah. 2020. Yeah. OK, that's because the Senate and Congress refuse to do their job. <laughs> OK, yeah. they're not doing oversight. They just yeah. said, hey, look, you guys fight yeah. a war. Yeah. Go over here, stay out, fight a war. We love you guys, but just do it over there, right? And so you have this complicit Congress that is failing to update the basic the basic tenet of this war, the reason we're at war. And then you and but and, and they just keep throwing money at it yeah. and, and hoping the best. You've got general officers. I love I have a lot of friends with general officers now, and, and no general is gonna say, you know what, we lost that war. F it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. You know, right. let's go home. You know, it's yeah. not who we are. We're never gonna lose. So unless someone, the civilian leadership says, you know what? This isn't worth it anymore, right? Why did we win the revolution? Because we bled the British dry. Mm-hmm. We didn't necessarily have to beat them militarily. Eventually, we did at Yorktown because the French joined us. Mm-hmm. But we bled them dry. They couldn't afford the war anymore. And so we are fighting these endless wars. And, and so, yeah, Trump wants to pull the troops out. Well, great. That's a thing. But for the wrong reasons, once again, they're talking about pulling out 5,000 troops in time for the election. Okay, is there a handoff plan? Is the Afghanistan government ready to take over? Um, was Iraq's government ready to take over? Is pulling out of Germany? Why are we pulling out of Germany? There's there's no good military reason except he really doesn't like Andrea because she's mean to him. <laughs> you know, it, it's no. The it's, only it's, reason is he wants to be able to say that from a stage. That's right, it. right. And so now he can say, "I pulled us out of Afghanistan." Yeah, great. But if it falls into chaos, we're gonna have the same situation. We have to go back. To, we had to go back to Iraq. We're gonna have to go back to Afghanistan again because we do have a duty to the people. You know, the old. When the old pottery barn joke back from 2003, you know, if you broke it, you got to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you broke it, you fix it, right? And yeah. so we broke it. And so I think that's the frustration. A lot of people get sucked into that. They go, yeah, we want to get out. I have people attack me like, Fred, why are you mad? You've been saying for three years, we should, the endless forever wars, the multi-generational wars should add. It's like, yeah, but the right way. Um, I, I'm still 
angry to the core about the way we treated the Kurds in Syria. We literally left people, thousands of people just to die. People who had bled with us, people who had fought with us. I know Kurds. I fought with Kurds. I served Kurds. I served a Kurdish village in my sector back in 2003. They're brave, honorable people who are just trying to survive. And we literally just walked away because, nah, we're done. And so I think he gets away with it because he does things like that. He, he did increase the budget. He did pull us out of Iraq. But again, I think if you understand the nuance of what's going on here, it's all just, it's, it's, it's just pantomime. It's, it's kabuki theater. It's not real. And uh, so I think he gets away with it a lot of ways. And so a lot of people say, yeah, see, he loves the troops. Look at him hug the flag. Obviously yeah. loves the flag. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, uh, so it's fun being a person who isn't a big fan sometimes. I get some great messages. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Fred, before we wrap up for today, is there Anything else you'd like to leave with our listeners who may be genuinely on the fence about who to vote for, especially those who may not come from a military background? I think we go back to what we talked about earlier in the program, right? So what's the choice we face? We face Trump and the Republicans who have been the party of national security. They, they have, that's, the, that's part of their modus operandi, their defense hawks, if you will, which is why I was a Republican for so long. I was a defense hawk. Um, in many ways, I still am. So that's where we belong. That's what been, it's been our home. It's been the military's home. The Republican Party has been the home for veterans and military for, for generations, let's be honest. But now we face a choice with an unusual one because the Bidens are not your typical Democratic nominee, right? Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, they are a blue star family. They, they sent a son to war. They know how that feels to have a son serve and, and then to lose him later. They... They ran joining Mrs. Doc, or Dr. Biden, excuse me, ran the Joining Forces program, which was a remarkable program, which I got to tell you, I don't know if I have any tweets about it. I hope I don't. <laughs> but I was not, I was a skeptic of that program. I, a matter of fact, I actually counseled my clients in 2011 not to join because I thought it was just smoke and mirrors to get them reelected. And then it kept going and it kept going and it went for six years or five or six years. And, and I, I ended up working, being invited to events. And, and you know what? No one ever asked me when I show up at the mm. White House mm. for a joining force event. No one ever asked me who I voted for. Okay. And so we face a very clear choice in this election. And if you're a military member, a family member, a veteran, where you're just, you know, a patriotic American who loves the troops, which so many, especially our Republican friends, are, are so passionate about the service to our nation that our, our uniformed service members do. Just take a second in that voting booth and say, I've got this gentleman who's never served, who has disrespected the military, has used them inappropriately, has abused his power as a commander in chief, versus this gentleman and his family who actually have given up their children to the nation and have honored their service through work publicly and privately and shown real empathy. I think, I think. If you, I just wish people who would step in that void, with just a few, would say, you know what? Since this is an important issue for me, as a military support mission, I'm going to choose this family. Mm -hmm. I'm going to choose this military, blue star, service to the nation family over this other gentleman who hasn't. And, and I think if we get that, if we come down, if you're if you're a single issue voter or even a multi issue voter, and you're on the fence, know that people like me who have served and have kids serving really desperately want them to have a commander in chief who cares about their life like it's their own child. Yeah. And that's the difference. The difference between Trump and Biden is so very clear. Biden will treat our service members, no matter what decision or policy goes on, he will always treat our children like his own. And I can, I can say without doubt that we've never seen Trump treat the service members like they're his own children, and we will see less of it in the second term. So that's my hope. I hope just a few people say, you know what? I'm going to give this guy a chance because I care about our service members and the Bidens have proven time and time and again in a lifetime of service that they do too. That's what I hope for. 
Fred, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you. And thanks to all of you at home for listening. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.